joy or the idea of of joy uh, seems to be everywhere these days. It is used to sell boxes at Ikea. It is also included in ads uh, for McDonald's, for drinks at McDonald's. And there are are t-shirts, you might have seen some of the t-shirts, that tout joy as an act of resistance. There's also a podcast, actually there's I think several podcasts uh, around this theme, but one of them is titled Chasing Joy. There's a number of books that are published each year about joy. And the author asked the question, if joy is everywhere, why does happiness feel so elusive? Or why are so many people unhappy? If, if this theme of joy is so pervasive in our culture, why doesn't it show in people's hearts and faces? The article says that this past year has been challenging for nearly everyone, to say the least. So if you're having more difficulty finding joy and finding positivity in life, you're not alone. As a matter of fact, a University of Chicago study found that happiness among Americans has fallen to a five-decade low. But people have given tips on how to be more joyful. Uh, One gentleman says that happiness has two components. The first is life satisfaction, which is the sense that your life is going well. And the second is positive emotions. So those two things should usher you into this life of joy. Most of us in most of the world find joy in what? Those things. Our life situation, don't we? Our circumstances. And when those things are going well in our life, then we're pretty happy people, right? If, if, I'm, if I'm getting my needs met... If my interests are, are being fulfilled, if I'm feeling okay, if I'm, if I'm comfortable, if I'm not sick, right? I'm a pretty happy guy to be around, right? You'd, you'd want to hang out with me. But over these past couple of weeks, I don't think you'd want to be near me because I was not very joyful. And I wasn't joyful because it was based upon my experience at the moment, and, and, and much of the world seeks after a joy like that, and that joy, I'm going to tell you folks, is elusive and will not last. Jesus just recently talked about peace, didn't he? And he talked about peace that is not of this world but a peace that only he can give us. And now he's going to kind of up the ante, so not only in Jesus Christ can we have peace, true peace, but also he tells us what true joy is all about and what it is like. Not only can we have peace, but we can have a real, deep, and abiding joy. A joy that transcends our circumstances, but comes about very, very differently than that of the world. And it is a result. It's a result of true love, and it is at the expense 
of guess who? Us. It's kind of opposite what the world teaches, isn't it? We see this principle emerge in this passage today. That a love of self, a seeking our own interests, a seeking our own comforts, does not bring us joy. But great joy in love, in a loving relationship, is found in the willing sacrifice of ourselves. Great joy in love is found in the willing sacrifice of ourself. This is not a statement that we are going to hear in this world, is it? People are going to tell us that joy is found when we are taking care of number one. When our needs are being met and when we are not experiencing loss. These words are seldom found together in our world today. But we will experience the greatest joy when we sacrifice ourselves for those we love, primarily God and His kingdom. We find the greatest joy when we are seeking, not after our own interests, but those of Christ and those of others, those we love. It is a principle, folks, that we're just constantly reminded of in Scripture, aren't we? It's woven throughout the pages of Scripture. And to take this principle out of Scripture, we might as well as well remove the cross itself. Sacrificial joy. And it's a principle that the church in America needs to hear loud and clear. That joy is not found in seeking our own interests, but sacrificing those interests for the sake of Christ and for the sake of others. We need to hear it on an ongoing basis. And we see this principle emerge in our passage today. There's two aspects that we're going to look at. The first aspect is Jesus expects it, verses 28 through 29. You have heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. A recent interview with actress, I think this is how you pronounce her name, but I'm not sure, Maria Fabriella de Faria. Does anyone know? Have anyone heard of Maria Fabriella? I've never heard of her. But she was in uh, an interview from the Wall Street Journal in a a piece called Global Heroes. So she's considered a a global hero, which is interesting given what she's about to say. And she was asked something in this interview. She was asked, what is one choice that everyone can make 
to improve the world around them. So here's a choice that individuals can make to supposedly improve others' lives or the world around them, but I think that she is thinking more of her own life. Here's how she answered that, that question. She says, look for your own truth. So look for your own truth. Live your own truth instead of repeating anyone else's. She explained, what is crucial to me is make my audience question old beliefs. She counsels her fans to engage in a daily practice of asking, what is it that I need today? And then go after that. That is, that's the counsel of this world, and we find that it is actually being, being taken in and believed because uh, less than half Americans aged 18 to 34, when interviewed about marriage and life decisions, say that, that marriage and family, they, they are not part of being an adult. The reason why is because they want to achieve personal autonomy. To be an adult for these individuals is to exercise one's will independently of obligations to others. So they want no obligations whatsoever. So that's why they're not getting married, right? Because if you get married, I hope all of us who are married realize that this person needs to die for the sake of the other person. Folks, in life there's a constant battle, isn't there? What's the constant battle? It starts every day that we wake up. The constant battle is what, what is best for me, what do I want, what am I seeking after, what is good for me at the moment, what are God's interests, and what are the interests of others. Don't we all struggle with that battle every, every day, every week of our lives? What is beneficial for me, or what is beneficial for Jesus Christ and His kingdom, and what is beneficial for others? And I think the love of self in our culture, hands down, is winning out, isn't it? And it's even winning out in Christian circles. It's winning out so much so that we've taken the command to love others or to love others as we love ourselves as the guiding principle of this manifesto. Basically, I cannot love you properly until I'm really, really loving myself first. That, my friends, is false. Please do not believe that. We all love each other, love ourselves just fine. Jesus is telling us that because we don't love others like we love ourselves. Therefore, apply that type of love to the love of others, and I would add, to the love of God. Jesus teaches this right here in this passage. He expects it of his followers. And here we see that it's not just a denial of self. Notice Notice what Jesus is saying here. He's actually correcting his disciples' emotions, feelings, desires, and interests at the time. What are his disciples interested in? Keeping Jesus right where he's at. And he says, listen, listen guys, if you really, really love me, you're going to want what's best for me. You're going to want what brings me joy, not what brings you joy at this moment. That's love. He is revealing, and he says this to all of us. 
He's, he's saying this to each and every one of us. If we truly, truly love Jesus Christ, we are going to want and find joy in what brings him pleasure and joy, not us. Not ourselves. At the expense of ourselves, for his sake, for his glory, and for his kingdom. He's revealing this lack of love to his disciples and revealing that our emotional responses to situations reveals our love and interest in life. Sometimes something, sometimes we feel a certain way because we love that thing too much. And when that thing is taken away from us, we find this depression or sadness or lack of joy. Why? Because that's where our interests lie. But if our interests lie with Him and with His kingdom, then those things that may cause us loss but bring Him joy should make us what? Rejoice. That's hard, isn't it? It's not easy. Not at all. Sometimes we are more concerned with how something makes us feel than whether it is true or good or in his interest. Contradicting our actress's advice and the rest of the world's, it's not our truth that is it. Whose truth that matters? It's this, isn't it? This is the guiding principle for our interests. This is the guiding principle for, for how we are to live our life, not according to our truth, but His truth. Uh, how many times have we read a... Did, does all the truth in Scripture make you feel good? <laughs> no. Passages like this, I think, are designed not to make us feel good at all. You read passages like this, I feel like a jerk. I want to hide in a corner because I don't do this. This isn't Mark on a, a normal basis. And, and, I, and, and the Lord made me sit on this text for two weeks for a reason. He's like, no, you need another whole week to think about this. Why? Because I've been in my own interests lately. I want to get better. I'm, I, you know, I feel sick. I don't want to be around people. I don't want to do things. You know? So here I am all just in this ball of Mark. And you read truths like this, and you're like, oh, yeah, that's great. Let's go out and do it. No, and no one's doing that. You know, it's not about how things make us feel sometimes. It's about what's real, what's good, and what is true. D.A. Carson, in his commentary on John, shares this wonderful insight to this passage. He says, the failure of these first disciples, sad to say, has often been repeated in the history of the church where Christians have been far more alert to their own griefs and sorrows than to the things that bring their master joy. Guilty. Guilty. Far more alert to our own losses, our own griefs, our own sorrows, and it doesn't mean they're not hard. 
But he's pulling his disciples out of this. And he's saying, hey, guys, listen up. And in the end, who's, who's it going to benefit? The disciples. They're going to be saved because he goes to the cross. What are we more in tune with? Because this is how a church thrives. Sacrificial love. This is how a church thrives. This is how his kingdom grows. Sacrificial love. Sacrificial love for each other. Sacrificial love for Jesus Christ and going out and bringing his message and loving others sacrificially. Are we more in tune with how we feel or are we more in tune with what brings him joy? I, I can answer that. <laughs> I'm more in tune with how I feel. Many times. Many times. Are we, how are we doing what they did here? Am I letting my own self-interest and my own temporary happiness overshadow the interests of Christ? Because if we're doing that, we're not loving Him, we're loving ourselves. Jesus is letting them know that their emotions, the way that they are feeling, should be the opposite. One of the greatest hindrances to our joy is our own selfishness. And we will only experience the joy that Jesus is talking about when we get the order right, his interests, the interests of others, and then comes ourselves. This is why we might be sad or depressed and experience all these little emoji emotions. We might be sad because we're not getting our needs met. And if we're letting those needs keep us from serving Christ and serving the church, we're not loving him. I've said this before, that I believe that emotions are a part of faith, absolutely. And we're going to go through tough times, and it's okay to have emotions. But, but also, I also think that we're living in a culture where we're putting our feelings, the way something makes us feel, ahead of what is true and what is right and what is good. And we're allowing our emotions, our feelings about a certain situation to dictate how we react to that situation. And that is not good. It's not about what we feel. Alistair Bay goes into a great rant about worship and, 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 and it's not about what, what we feel. He says, don't ask me how, what, how I feel. He feels miserable. <laughs> he says, ask me what I know. Ask me what's true. This is true. It's what we need to hear. We need to be challenged in this on a constant basis. We need to stop thinking about ourselves. And we need to start thinking about that which brings him joy. Going to the Father brings Jesus joy. The disciples should want that. Doing the Father's will brings Jesus joy. It's what is best for Jesus. Jesus needs to fulfill this mission. And then ultimately, he's going to the Father. And he's saying to his disciples, don't you want me to be with my Father in heaven? Don't you want me to return to my former glory? This should make you rejoice for me. 
but they're not. They're upset. Why is he saying this to them? Because he's letting them know it has to do with their faith, doesn't it? When we look at life through our lens and through a selfish lens, when bad things happen to us, our faith is shaken because we're looking at it with the wrong perspective. He's preparing them for something. He knows what's going to happen. He's going to leave. And he doesn't want their faith to be shaken. He wants them actually to rejoice in it. And he wants them to know that what is happening is good, not bad. He's reassuring them. He's telling them ahead of time. He knows what uh, is about to happen, and he wants them not to be sad, but to rejoice in a situation that is absolutely difficult, yes, but in the end, it is to their eternal benefit. We do things and we seek after things because we think it's benefiting us at the time. And sometimes that's true. But sometimes we must go through loss in order to get the gain in the end. Because what Jesus does in the end benefits them for all eternity, doesn't it? What Jesus does in the end brings them into his presence where he'll never leave them nor forsake them. Where they will be with him forever. But they want this now. How many times have we gone through something and, and if I'm going through it with the wrong perspective, and if I'm going through it thinking of myself, do I begin to question his goodness? Do it all the time. And my faith gets shaken. Trusting in Jesus is not just trusting Him when everything is going well. And that's the hard part of life, isn't it? It's trusting Him when our own comforts, our own feelings, our own views of life are being tested and being taken. It's trusting Him in loss. They're looking at an earthly temporary gain, not an eternal one. They are looking at their own gain, not His gain, not what is good for Him. And Jesus not only expects this and teaches this, but he, he lives it out, doesn't he? Jesus embodies this. Verse, verses 30 through 31. Jesus says, I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming. He has nothing in me. Or nothing on me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father has commanded me. Get up. Let us go from here. What have we been saying? That the love of someone is revealed by sacrificing themselves for that individual. Who does Jesus love here? He loves his Father. Jesus wants the world to know something. That he is not going to the cross because he's guilty. He's going to the cross, yes, in our stead and yes, for our sake, but we have to see something here. He's going to the cross, first and foremost, out of love 
of the Father, for the Father, and revealing that love by doing what? Sacrificing himself for his interests. It's exactly what he just expects us to do, isn't it? He goes to the cross. And it is because of what he says in the very beginning that he can do so freely. Satan has absolutely nothing on him, nothing in him. And because of that, Jesus Christ can offer himself to God to satisfy his wrath in our place. Sacrifice. All these aspects we see here in these two verses, the substitution in our place and the love of the Father, we have the what and the why. The what is that Jesus is about to face the devil head on out of obedient love of the Father. It's important for us to understand why Jesus can do this and why we benefit from it. So Jesus' conflict with the devil comes to a climax at his crucifixion. And the devil thinks what? I've won. It actually seals the devil's fate, doesn't it? And the reason why it seals his fate is because of what Jesus says here. The devil had nothing in him. The devil has no legal claim over Jesus Christ. There is no sin, there is no wrong that the devil can hold over the head of Jesus Christ and say, this is what you've done. Nothing. He has nothing on. Jesus has said before to, to those who are, who are against him, and he says, Try to find, can, can anyone point out anything I've done wrong? You can't. We cannot find anything wrong with Jesus. Jesus is the perfect, sinless sacrifice. I want you to, I want you to do something. Maybe, I don't know if, you know, this, we'll see how this works afterwards, but you can let me know. Mark, don't ever do that again. Um, I want you to compile a list in your head of some of the sins that you've done in the past few days. Please do not share them with the person next to you. I will not ask you to share them with the person, but I just want you to think in your head, of some of the things that you've done wrong. Uh, maybe some of you need to go back a few days. Maybe some of you just go back a few minutes. I don't, I'm not quite sure. But um, I'm sure you know. Right? So I, and then I want you to, I want you to take that, that list and multiply that by all the years and days of your life. So you might be here for a while. Let me ask you something. Do you think Satan has something on you? Oh, oh yeah. See, my list, my, I think my mind is going to roll out into the parking lot, right? Satan, Satan, this is how, so Jesus calls him what? The ruler of this world. This is how Satan rules us. How does he rule us? He's got legal claim over us. He can hold those things in our face and say, hey, look, this is what you've done. I got you. I got you. These are God's laws, you broke these laws. You're a sinner. Right? And he accuses us. He takes our flaws and our sins and he holds them over us, those things that we've done wrong. 
all of our failures, all of our evil thoughts, all of our evil intentions, our unloving and hurtful words, those things that we've done and those things that we've failed to do, reminding us constantly of our guilt. Not so with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was sinless. And this sinlessness was not just a lack of sin, but it is in his very nature of who he is. 100% man, 100% God, sinless, perfect in his nature. And this sinlessness, this perfection of Jesus Christ gives Satan no hold over his life, no claim over him. And because of this freedom that Jesus has, Jesus can freely offer his life in our place for us. He who became, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that what? We might become the righteousness of God in him. This is the gospel. Jesus in our place. The one who was not guilty took the pain, the punishment, the penalty for the ones who are. Now, if you ever heard the story of Noble Doss, Noble Doss dropped the ball. It was one ball. It was one pass. It was one mistake. In 1941, he let one fall. It's haunted him ever, ever since. I cost us the national championship, he says. University of Texas football team was ranked number one in the nation, hoping for an undefeated season and a place in the Rose Bowl. They played conference rival Baylor University with a 7-0 lead in the third quarter. The Longhorn quarterback launched a deep wide pass to a deep pass to wide-open Doss. The only thing I had between me and the goal, he recalls, was 20 yards of grass. The throw was right on target. All the fans in the stadium rose to their feet, waiting for him to catch the pass. What did he do? He dropped it. He reached out and slipped through. Baylor rallied and tied the score with seconds to play. Texas lost their top ranking. They also lost their chance at the Rose Bowl. He says, I think about that play every day. Not that he lacks other memories, he says. He's happily married for more than, he was happily married at this time, more than six decades. A father, a grandfather, he served in the Navy during World War II. He appeared on the cover of Life magazine with his Texas teammates. He intercepted 17 passes during his collegiate career. He won two NFL titles with the Philadelphia Eagles. Texas High School Hall of Fame and Longhorn Hall of, Hall of Honor include his name. Most people remember the plays that he successfully done, the passes that he caught. He remembers that one. One time when he met a new Longhorn head coach, he told him about the bobbled ball, and as he told him, he wept. That was 50 years after it happened. 
Sometimes we're a lot like that football player, aren't we? We can't forget the balls that we've dropped. And Satan likes to remind us of them, doesn't he? Satan likes to take that list. You could be walking, it could be any, happen at any time, right? There you are, just going about your day, and all of a sudden, you, you just remember something, and you're like, oh, man, alive. I can't believe I did that. And the guilt starts coming in, the accuser starts coming at you. Let me tell you something. Let me ask you something. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, do you know where that list is right now? I'll tell you where that list is. That list of those decrees, of those things that are held against us, was nailed to the cross with Jesus Christ because he paid the penalty for every single one of those sins. You can forget all the balls that you've dropped because Satan had nothing on Jesus and for those who trust in him, Satan's got nothing on us either. Nothing at all. That's the gospel. It's not my work it's not my righteousness. It's that Jesus Christ stood in my place where I belonged. And because he stood in my place, I'm going to stand next to him one day. Martin Luther says this. When the devil throws our sins up to us and declares us that we deserve death and hell, we ought to speak thus. I admit it. You're right. (laughs) That is what I deserved. What of it? Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. Why? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Where he is, there I shall be also for all eternity. Brothers and sisters, if you're here today and you have not trusted in what he has done for you, I'm begging you to do so right now. Don't let Satan hold that list in your face anymore. Give it to Christ. Let him nail it to the cross because that's where it's going to stay for all eternity. Don't waste another second. It doesn't matter what you've done. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for those sins and the ones you're going to commit in the future. This is faith. This is the gospel. We're set free. We're not under Satan. He can't accuse us anymore because there's one who stood in our place. There's one who stands at God's right hand right now and he intercedes for every single one of us who've trusted in him. All your sins, all your wrongs, all your thoughts, all your deeds. Jesus Christ took them. And it's this triumph over Satan. 
over the world through the cross. And by doing this, He showed the world His love for the Father. Sacrificial love, out of obedience, doing what, was, what, what brought God joy for us, yes, but loving obedience given freely for the sake of you and me. Because Jesus loved the Father, He obeyed the Father. Because Jesus loved the Father, Jesus found joy in sacrificing Himself. He found joy in denying Himself to the point of death on a cross. And because Jesus loved the Father, you and I can now share in that love for all eternity. Jesus loved the Father. It wasn't, it wasn't a close, proximate love. It was an exact love. Exact love. He does everything that He commands. And we see both this sacrificial love principle at work and this obedient love principle as well. And listen to what Jesus says at the end. Let's go. <laughs> Let's go. Can't stay here, guys. We can't stay here. We got to go forward. I got work to do. I, got, I need to obey my Father. I'm going to sacrifice myself for you. Let's go. And some of us need to heed that today, don't we? Let's go. Let's not stay in the focus of ourself. Let's not stay what brings us happiness and joy. Let's go with Jesus. Let's follow Him to the cross, yes, but to eternal and everlasting joy. Let's go. Let's get up from here. The ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate expression of love. So what's, what's Jesus' path to joy? Oh, Hebrews tells us, doesn't it? It's one that leads to the cross. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus Christ the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Great joy in love is found in the willing sacrifice of ourselves. Father, thank you for the work of Jesus Christ. Lord, it is only because of what he did that we can then follow just as best as we can to do what he calls us to do. Lord, help us to be people who are constantly seeking after those things that not bring us joy, but you joy, Lord. Help us to be people who sacrifice ourselves 
for your sake and for the sake of others. And help us to be people who do not trust in our own works, our own righteousness, but that alone, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for loving your Father so much and doing what you did to save our souls and reserve a place in heaven for sinners like me. Father, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.